let's look to five people around you and say, I'm so happy that you're here. Can you do that? Just five people that you haven't said hi to. Let's greet each other. Say hello to Reagan. Say thank you for sharing. All right. It is uh, so wonderful to be together as a church. I love uh, Sunday mornings. I love being together. Thank you for yeah, being the, the body of Christ. Um, if you're new today, if you're worshiping online and you're new, uh, we'd love to stay in touch with you and get your information. If you could do that online, there's a link uh, in the description area. If you're here in person as you walk out of here um, through the cafe, um, Brian or somebody else will be here with a, with a uh, clipboard to get your information. We'd love to get you connected uh, to some of the things that God is doing in our midst. Um, this week on my uh, day off, I went to Tampa, uh, Tampa, Florida, because there was a baseball game out there. Um, our beloved Baltimore Orioles <laughs> were playing against the Tampa Bay Rays. So the Tampa Bay Rays play at home, and they're a very good team, very, very good team, an excellent team. And the Orioles are a very, very bad team, like terrible team. One of the, actually, they're probably the worst by record in the entire major leagues. Like some of them believe they don't deserve to be a baseball team, but they are. So I was wearing my Orioles jersey, very proudly sporting it, and going into the contest knowing that it's going to be a slaughterhouse. We're going to get rocked. We had lost 14 games in a row. <laughs> uh, now it's 16 games in a row because they lost the game that I was at and they lost the game after that. It might be 17 in a row, but either way, we're very bad, 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 very bad team. So I was sitting there with my Orioles jersey, knowing that I'm in enemy territory and that people are going to laugh at me, but I'm there proudly sporting my jersey. And after this one particularly bad inning where the Orioles were just getting beat up, and it was really sad, the elderly man, he was probably like 70, 75, he was a, he was a Rays fan sitting next to me, he said, you're an Orioles fan. I said, yes, sir, I am. And he said, what do you think happened to the Orioles? I remember when they used to be really good. I said, I remember that, that too. Um, it was, seemed like a long time ago. He was asking what happened to a team that was once so good that had become so bad. And I think if you follow baseball, you know pretty, pretty clearly what happened with the Orioles. They had some good players who were being paid a lot of money, but they were getting older and older and older. And because the team was focused on the here and now, we've got to get a good product, we've got to make it to the World Series, our window of opportunity is closing, they focused so much on the team that was that they didn't think about the team that was coming up. Because they were so focused on the here and now, they didn't have time to think about the team for generations to come. And because all of their investment was in the team that's on the field right now, they didn't have time or energy to think about the younger players who would one day come up and take the field wearing the Baltimore Orioles uniform. They were so focused on the here and now that they couldn't think about the future. And so it led them a couple years later to being the worst team in baseball, and we've been for the last three years. I thought to myself, what happened to my favorite baseball team? God forbid that that would happen with the church. A lot of times the church can get so focused on the here and now and building a great church now that we don't think about the church next year or five years later or 10 years later or 20 years later. And because of that haunting thought, not because of that haunt, well, because of that haunting thought that was brought to my mind again at a baseball game in Tampa, I want to explain to you why we are intentional about being intergenerational here 
and why that's not only a practical thing, why that's not only the avoidance of a nightmare scenario, but why that's part and parcel of the heart of our God. We're not doing this intergenerational thing because it is practical. We're doing it for the sake of principle. And I want to show where that comes from because this is us. We're an intergenerational congregation. That may not be for you. That may not be for everybody. And if it's not, that's okay. But that's who we are. Okay, That's who we are. And if you're going to jump on board the mission of this particular church, of our particular church, then you've got to know who we are. We're going to read, and there's many places we can go to, but I want to look at Psalm 78 and read the first eight verses here. Again, we could talk about so many different places in Scripture because God's heart through and through is a heart that beats for the generations. God's heart is intergenerational. We're going to read from Psalm 78, verses 1 through 8. And as we go through this time, I want to help you to understand. For those of you who are new and you said, wow, there's a lot of old people in here, or wow, there's a lot of young people in here, I want you to know that you didn't come into this particular place by mistake. But I want you to see what God is doing in our midst and what we're seeking to do in following his heartbeat. Psalm 78, a mesquil of Asaph, says, O my people, hear my teaching. Listen to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter hidden things. What hidden things? Things from of old. What we have heard and known what our fathers have told us, we will not hide them from their children. We will tell the next generation. What are you going to tell them? The praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, His power and the wonders He has done. He decreed statutes for Jacob and established the law in Israel, which He commanded our forefathers to teach their children. Why? So the next generation would know them even the children yet to be born, and they in turn would tell their children. Then they'd put their trust in God and would not forget His deeds, but would keep His commands. They wouldn't be like their forefathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation whose hearts were not loyal to God, whose spirits were not faithful to Him. This is the Word of God for the people of God. What do we see here? Two things, two things that I want to pull out. A lot of things that we could, we could talk about, a lot of observations you could make. But two things. Okay. You could separate everything else by age, but faith was meant to be intergenerational. Okay, you could separate everything else by faith, I'm sorry, by age, but faith was meant to be intergenerational. See, a lot of churches, you come to an immigrant church, you come to a Korean-American church, a Chinese-American church, you come to an immigrant church, you come to a lot of churches, the ideal picture to show that they have made it past a particular benchmark is you get all the English speakers together, and as soon as you get a critical mass large enough, and as soon as you get someone who speaks English willing to teach the young people, you separate the youth from the adults. Maybe you've grown up in churches like that where that was the ideal picture. Oh, uh, you don't want to keep them together. You got to separate them. You got to start a separate youth group, and then you got to have a separate EM, is what they call it. You got to separate all that out together. And the question that I want to ask is 
Okay, if you're going to do that, which may be okay for you, if that's God's particular call, depending on, on, on your conviction, but the burden of proof has to be on you to show why that is a biblically appropriate way of doing church rather than to keep people together. In other words, what I'm trying to say is if you're to separate people by age group, then the burden of proof is on you to show that that is both ideal and the call of God for your particular church. Because the way that I read Scripture, that's not what I see. I see this here in Psalm 78. Okay? It says, what our fathers have told us at the end of verse 3 and verse 4, we will not hide them from their children. We will tell the next generation. There's a defiance here. It says, we will not hide. We will tell the next generation. What are we going to tell them? The praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, His power, and the wonders He has done. Decreed statutes for Jacob, all that stuff which He commanded our forefathers to teach their children so the next generation would know them, even the children yet to be born, and they in turn would tell their children. Guys, when it comes to faith, the generations are called to be together in propagating that. In the clear picture, the analogy they give is the faith of the gospel in the gospel is held in the hands of all of us right now. That's us. We've got it. You've got it. If you have Jesus, you have the baton of faith in your hand. Doesn't matter if you're ninth grade, doesn't matter if you're 50 years old. Okay, if you've got faith, it's in your hand. And the call of God is that you would take that and you would pass that. Okay, not just drop it for someone to pick up, not just run away with it, but you take that and you put that into the hand of a person coming behind you. That's the clear teaching of Psalm 78. It's not just Psalm 78, but you see this in place after place after place in Scripture. From the very beginning in Genesis, okay, he made covenants, God made covenants with Adam, and he said, what you do with this, Adam, is going to affect your generations to come. The covenants that God made with his people, with Adam, with Noah, with Moses, with Abraham, with David, all of them were made with a person and with the generations to come. Okay? Because faith of all things was meant to be transmitted generationally from one generation to another. Think about how you got the faith. Somehow we got the faith from somebody from another generation who gave that to us. If not to you, they gave it to someone else who brought it to you. But it always transfers from one generation to the next. You see this when God says not only, he could have said, who are you? God, who are you? I'm the God of Abraham. Everybody knows God, who Abraham's God is. But he didn't say that. He said, I'm the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. There's a generational passing on of the faith from one generation to the next generation. It is absolutely vital to the faith. So then you come uh, to the book of Numbers and you realize that one generation, okay, that wilderness generation, did not pass their faith on to the next generation. That's why they wandered in the wilderness. The book of Numbers was written to warn the second generation not to avoid, to avoid the mistakes of the first generation because the first generation did not pass this on to the next so then after Numbers comes the book of Deuteronomy, which is all about take your faith and pass it on to the next generation. The greatest teaching in the Old Testament, the Shema, was a command to parents to teach their children what the most important thing was, Deuteronomy 4. Deuteronomy 6, Deuteronomy 32, it says the same thing. Make sure that your children know the love and the faith of God. Then you come to Joshua. What Moses did when he looked at the generation to come, he looked at Joshua and he said, Joshua, I'm going to pass the baton of faith onto you and you're going to get it and you're going to walk into the promise. You're going to lead the people into the promised land. And the picture of generational passing on of the faith from Moses to Joshua is a clear picture in Scripture. 
And so you see that happening, but the book of Judges then comes with life in the promised land when the people of God failed to take the faith and pass it on to the people who came behind them. In one of the tragic verses in Scripture, Judges 2.10, says, The next generation rose up who neither knew God nor the great things that God had done. Why not? What, what was up with their parents? Their parents must have just been nominal believers. They must not have been that faithful people. They must have just been just, you know, church-going people. No, 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 no. This was Joshua and his generation who had seen God part the waters who had seen the walls of Jericho fall, who had seen grasshopper-like people stand in front of giants and see these giants run and flee at the mention of his name, King of Majesty. They'd seen those things. Listen, guys, if you had seen those things, if you were there and you saw God work in those ways, would you not want to tell your children of that God that you loved, knew, served, and worshipped and obeyed? But for whatever reason, they didn't do that. And so a generation rose up who did not know who God was. You hear this a lot here. But the church is always one generation away from extinction. There's no guarantees, my friends, that our church harvest is going to be here in five years, in 10 years, in 20 years. There's an intentional move that God gives to his people that says, you've got to take it and you've got to pass it on to the next generation. If we're siloing our congregation, youth go here, adults go here, and a lot of it's okay. You got the little kids here, you got the middle schoolers here, you got the high schoolers here, you got the college people here, you got the singles here, you got the quarter lifers here, you got the young married here, you got the silver ministry here. When all of these things are siloed out, then I wonder, okay, sometimes at a very practical level, you have to have those gatherings. And I'm not saying we don't we don't need to have children's ministry and youth ministry. We have to have that, absolutely. But what I'm not saying is that everything should be siloed out so that there is no intergenerational mingling and passing on of the faith. That has to be there because that's the heart of God. Okay, you see that all throughout Scripture. You come to the New Testament, you see the same thing. The Old Testament, it was the festivals when three times a year they're supposed to, families are supposed to come to Jerusalem. It's families come and they celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles and the Pentecost and Feast of Weeks and all of these gatherings. And they would, they would play and they would eat and they would celebrate. And they would tell the stories because the faith of one generation was supposed to be passed on to the next generation by one generation to the next. Then you come to 2 Timothy. You come to, you come to the book of Acts. You see the church, they were all together, young and old together wasn't all right now that Peter's getting up to preach, the kids go off separately. It wasn't like that. 2 Timothy, 1 Timothy, Titus were written by Paul to explain how to be a family of faith. The older must be teaching the younger. The older must be teaching the younger. Paul says to Timothy, where'd you get your faith from? It was your grandmother, and then who passed it on to your mother, and then to you. It was Lois and Eunice and you. It's the way it's been passed on. You could separate everything else in life by age, but faith is meant to be intergenerational. Right? This is why we do what we do. So how, how do churches get to the place where they decide to separate everything by age? Well, I think it's a product of our culture. It's practical because pragmatism, pragmatism is king in our world, isn't it? If it works, you got to do it. If it's better, do it this way. If it's more practical, results-driven, then do it this way. So what does our world do? Okay, we talk about specialization. 
Some of you older folks might be like, you know what, I love the young people, but I don't understand them. Therefore, let's just, let's give money to them and let them do the work so that we don't have to deal with these young people. Because I don't understand their social media, I don't understand the way they think, I don't understand their music, I can't under, mumble rap, what in the world is that? That doesn't even make any sense to me. What are the words that they're using? So we say, let's just let young people hang out with young people and pay people like Pastor Josiah to do it and let him deal with that. And it creates a fragmentation where fragmentation was not meant to be. See, uh, at our youth retreat, I was there one night, um, and we were eating snacks. And this one, uh, one of our now seniors in high school, uh, Kristen, said, Pastor Dio, come over here. And so I came over there, and she's like, these snacks, these snacks are bussin'. I was like, they what? <laughs> she said, say that, say that with me. These snacks are bussin'. I didn't know if she was clowning me or she's trying to teach me something, but I was like, you sure? That's the word. I never heard that before. They, these snacks are so bus. I was like, what is that? It, it, in, in no world would it make sense to me that the word bussin' means this is really cool, right? Like, that's crazy. Like, I don't understand. Like, and then someone else, uh, someone else said, hey, you know what? Um, gosh, uh, people are always trying to ship me and this girl. Where are they trying to ship you to? <laughs> That's so sad. Some of us older people are like, what does that even mean? It means they're trying to put you in a relationship together. They're trying to ship us. They're constantly trying to. Where are they trying to ship you to? I don't understand. My gosh, your eyebrows are on fleek today. What does that even mean? Like, That's so lit. Wow, crazy. And so because we don't understand the temptation, they just let the specialization happen with the specialized people. And so there's a segmentation of all of these different ages. It happens in education as well, right? That the first graders, second graders, that's how they learn better. You can't mix people of different ages. That's not how they learn well. I realize this because at our Korean school, we have a Korean school that meets on Saturday. It's going to start up again. And every now and then we have these non-Korean people or people who grew up not speaking Korean, don't know a word of Korean, who say, I want to learn Korean so I can understand K-pop or Korean dramas or so that I can uh, just learn a different language. And so these adults come in. They're like 30 years old. They're 40 years old and don't know a word of Korean except for maybe, you know, kimchi or kalbi or whatever. So they come in. They're like, I want to take Korean. So the early days of our Korean school, I remember this. They're like, oh, we don't have an adult class, but we'll put you in the beginner class. The beginner class is like kids who are four or five years old. <laughs> so you got this like 40-year-old Caucasian dude sitting with these like five-year-old kids. And like, I, no joke, I, I, the, the way I thought about it as I walked by them, I was like, that's Buddy the Elf sitting there with like real elves. <laughs> like this big old grown man sitting there like Sean O'Fi sitting there with like little kids his son's age learning Korean. And obviously, when the teacher writes something on the board, read it, after a while, after a while of learning the language, like the old man is dominating the kids. The kids don't have, they can't get a word in. Like, what is this? The guy's like, ka. What is this? Nah. What is this? Ta. And the kids are so frustrated. Why? Because even though they came in with zero baseline, they learn differently, right? This is educational theory. And so because not only is there fragmentation in our culture and society, not only is there fragmentation in education, then churches begin to think, well, we should separate everything out also because they'll learn better. But what culture says oftentimes is not the same thing as what the Word of God says. Because the Bible is very clear that faith is learned from one generation 
to the next. There's a, a man named Drew Johnson. He's an author. He wrote a book about knowing God. What does it mean to know God? And he said in the Old Testament, for you to know God, right? So here's uh, Ryan. He wants to know God. Right? Here's Cindy. She wants to know God, right? You want to know God. What does it mean? Here's what it means to know God. It's not just I know him. I know uh, Jesus loves me. This I know. I know that God. That's not what it means to know. Biblically speaking, what it means to know God has three components, three components. The first thing is that you are hearing and learning from someone more mature than you. Whenever the Bible talks about knowing God, it always begins with hearing and learning from someone more mature than you. The second aspect to knowing God, then, is you see that, what they're teaching, embodied in somebody's life. And then the third thing is that you begin to live that out as well. Yeah, that's what it means to know God. In other words, for you to know God, there has to be someone older and more mature than you who's not only teaching you, but who's living that out in order that you might see a model for you to follow when it comes to having faith in God. That's what it means to know God. Very important, very important. There has to be a generational passing on of faith from one to the other because what God is saying, why this is so important, he's saying because you become like the people you hang out with. So if the only people you're hanging out with are one year more mature than you, then that's oftentimes going to be the ceiling on your growth. Who you hang out with is who you're going to become like. So I talked with this mother, wife this week. Now that kids are back in school, I asked her, so how are you spending your time? Must have all the time in the world. Must be great. She's like, well, my husband is, my husband is making me go buy things for him. I was like, oh, sounds fun. Women love shopping, right? She's like, well, he's gotten into these like strange hobbies and I'm kind of worried about it. So I started probing a little bit, and she said, yeah, he's really gotten into camping. I was like, oh, my gosh, camping? She's like, yeah, you know, he wants to go camping this weekend, and it's so hot, so hot when you go camping. And there's all these bugs, like all these bugs when you go camping. I was like, yeah, camping is hot. There's bugs. Not only that, but you got to sleep inside of a tent. Like, that's not fun. Like, the last time, last time I went into a tent to sleep, actually, the, 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 actually I, I, I slept in, my, in a basement of a house inside of a tent with my kids one time just for fun, but that was on the carpeted floor. Last time before that that I went camping uh, was a senior class retreat. One of our graduating classes, we went to uh, Disney's Fort Wilderness, right? It's a campground, and they, like, pitch the tent for you and everything, so it's easy. Everything is done. Disney property, they don't have any bugs and stuff like that. So this is like the, 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 the glamping, camping thing, glorified camping, where you don't have to do anything. But it was time to go to sleep, and I remember going inside that tent, and it was hot, and it was smelly, and it was like all bumpy on the floor. So the tent was there, and I went and I slept in the car. Like, I don't want to sleep in here, not with all these like smelly senior dudes and all the bumpy ground and stuff. Like, I didn't want to do that. So I was like, that's what you got to deal with when you go camping too. And she said, yeah, it's gotten really bad because he bought these walkie-talkies. 
he bought these walkie-talkies, and, I, and, and he actually sent me a picture of it. The, on a mountain range, they could go, like, you have a 15-mile range. You can talk to me for 15 miles. That's, like, insane. Like, that's hardcore. That's not, like, some kids' Toys R Us walkie-talkie. This is the real deal, like, for real campers. And then she said, he also, he, he's been looking at this icebox that you plug in. Like, you plug stuff in when you go camping. I didn't know that. But you plug it in, and it's basically like a refrigerator. Like, how many days is he trying to go camping? And then this was a kicker. She said, he's even looking at buying an RV. By the time, she's like crying, 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 because she's so sad that she's lost her husband. <laughs> so here I am. I'm thinking, I'm all about let's get to the heart of it. So I said, when did this start? Like, when did this harmful behavior begin? And she said, it started when he got a new job. <laughs> he got a new job, and all the people that he works with wear trucker hats. They're drive pickup trucks. They got rifles, and all they do is they talk about camping. That's all they do. They talk about camping. All that long-winded story to say what she was saying is what God was saying. And we will become like the people we spend time with. God knew that when it came to faith formation. Faith is passed from one generation to the next. That's why what we do in here is so important. Did you know this? Okay. Uh, Fuller Youth Institute said nine out of ten people who put their faith in Jesus before they go to college, they said the number one factor was they had adults who knew and loved Jesus who were invested into their lives. Okay, nine out of ten people said that. Nine out of ten people who give their lives to Christ before they go to college said there were adults who were investing into my life. National Network of Youth Ministries said this. The number one, the number one reason, the number one uh, unifying factor for people who grow up in church and then they continue to remain committed to church when they go to college, the number one factor they said more than any other program, more than any other service, more than mission trips, more than anything else, the number one thing they said was that they were involved in an intergenerational worshiping community. That's what they said, National Network of Youth Ministries. So what we do when we gather here is we're seeking to bring the heartbeat of God into the church in being intergenerational. I understand this. Not everyone's going to understand what we're talking about, what I'm talking about here. But here's what I go by, and here's, here's kind of the, the, the baseline, that newspaper articles are written for people in eighth grade. So if you're in eighth grade, you ought to be able to read a newspaper. Obviously, if you're older than eighth grade, you ought to be able to understand it. So my deal is if I can preach that an eighth grader can understand it, then that's kind of my target audience. Yes, yeah, sixth graders or seventh graders may understand, they may be challenged, they may be stretched, they may not get, get everything, but then when we have people who are coming up to share their testimonies, they're beginning to hear the stories of God being passed on from one generation to the next, and they're beginning to understand, they're beginning to see, they're beginning to get it. And so by the time they graduate and leave, they understand that Christianity, that I don't just see God working amongst high schoolers or middle schoolers, he, I have seen him working during my entirety of my time here at Harvest. I've seen him. I've heard him working in the lives of graduating seniors. I've heard him working in missionaries over, overseas. I've heard him working in 30-year-old, 40-year-old, 50-year-old men and women that I've grown up seeing. I've seen him working in my parents. And this is how faith gets transmitted from one generation to the next. 
You could separate everything else by age in this world, but faith was meant to be intergenerational. That's the first thing that we see clearly here and throughout Scripture. The second thing that we see is what you do with the next generation. Okay, what you do with the next generation will yield either great regrets or great returns. Okay, what you choose to do with the next generation, if you have faith in Jesus right now, then you've got a baton in your hand. And what you do with that baton is going to lead to either great regrets at the end of it all, or it's going to lead to a great return. So what do you do with what you do? See, again, in verse 3, the defiance here in verse 4, we will not hide them from their children. We will tell the next generation. Like, I don't care what anyone else is doing or not doing, but as for me, I'm going to make it known to those who come behind me who God is, what he's done, what he's been in my life, and how he can bring change and hope in their lives. There's a defiance in their hearts that I'm going to make sure that by the end of my days, I'm going to get this baton into the hand of somebody coming behind me. Because they knew that this is, this is just what we do. This is not extra credit. This is what we do. When a mom makes a meal for her kids, she doesn't say, all right, kids, pay me money for the supplies, for the material, for the ingredients, for the time. She does it because that's what parents do. When a dad watches their kids because mom has to go out to Bible study or go out for, 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 for mama's night out with her friends, dad doesn't say, oh, my gosh, I have to babysit my kids. That ain't babysitting. You're a dad. That's your job. You ain't doing anything special. That's what you do. When they say, here we go. We're taking our faith and we're passing it on to the next generation. Nobody's saying that's what, yeah, oh my gosh, you're like superstar Christian right there. You deserve a plaque. They're like, this is what we do. This is what we do. It's when sixth graders say, I'm going to give back to my little brothers and sisters in children's ministry. You are taking the baton and you're trying to get it into their hand. When you lead children's house church, that's what you're doing. When you serve people in, a, in whatever way you do that, when you become a parent who owns your faith and your spirituality and you begin to model that, you, you teach it, you model it, and then you help them to get that, you're doing what God is calling you to do. But what you do with the next generation is going to either yield great regrets or it's going to yield great returns. Look at what he says. Here is a tragedy in verse 8. If you invest in them, it says, they would not be like their forefathers, and here by application, by contrast, is what they would be if we neglect them. A stubborn and rebellious generation whose hearts were not loyal to God, whose spirits were not faithful to Him. You cannot think about the church tomorrow without thinking about how we're living as the church today. It says, if we neglect the next generation, here's our lot. They're going to be like their forefathers, stubborn, rebellious. Hearts are not loyal to God. Spirits are not faithful to Him. Sometimes it's easy for us to look at the coming generation and say, you know what, what's wrong with them? It's the fact that we are sleeping in the bed that we've made for ourselves. You can't neglect the next generation and not have regrets. Why? Not just because God is trying to get us, but because this is how He's made the transmission of faith. happened in Israel, right? The generation that saw the miracles of God, all the things our fathers told us about who God is, His promises, they saw that, but one generation later, 
faith was gone within Israel. See that within Korea, which you know, 10 years, 15, 20 years ago, 25 years ago, everyone was talking about Korea, the second largest mission-sending nation in the world, this tiny little nation, seven of the ten largest churches in the world in Korea. But now, a decade, two decades later, one of my friends, Joel Pastor's out there, and he said, college-age people and younger in Korea, 3% of them are church-going people, 3%. One generation, one generation, that's all it takes. No guarantees that because church is going well today that it's going to be there tomorrow. Not only happens in faraway places like Israel, faraway places like Korea, it happens everywhere here too. I read this article a few years back, maybe four or five years ago. They interviewed all these students who grew up in church and, and they left. And they said the number one reason they say why, okay, and this is, let me talk to parents for a little bit here. The number, reason, number one reason why church-going children left church when they went to college is they said is because, not, not because of the secular humanism of the universities, not because of the, uh, the temptation in college, not because I had all this freedom. They said the number one reason was because of, quote-unquote, church-going parents. What does that mean? It means that if you go to church and you bring your church kids with you, there's no guarantee that faith is transmitted to them. There's got to be more intentionality than that. What do, what do they mean by it? Well, part of it was a hypocrisy that they saw within their parents at church and at home. There was all that stuff. But here's what they said, and this was as they dug deeper. This was kind of the, what, what the abstract was about. Said that they, these children grew up in church, went to college. They said, my parents told me that going to church was so important, was the most important thing. But when I had a lacrosse tournament over the weekend on a Sunday, they said, oh, we'll skip church just this one Sunday. And when mom had to go to work, and she just happened to work on Sunday, they said, we'll just skip church on Sunday. And when we go on family vacations out of town over the weekend, then we skip church on Sunday because we're on vacation. Church is that important, that important, but it's actually not that important that when we go on vacation or we've got other priorities, you've got sports tournaments, it's not that important. They grow up learning church is really important, but if there's something else that's a little bit more important, then church actually isn't all that important after all. And what they end up saying, what they end up saying is when I got to college, studying was really important because I'm trying to make it into med school. Sleep was really important because I was out all night. And when Sunday morning came, I knew church was important, but something else was a little bit more important that day. You cannot neglect the next generation, parents, and there not be results that come with it. You can get mad, you can get upset, but I'm just telling you straight talk right now, okay? Because this is my burden also. Okay, this is my future generation also. That's what happens when we neglect and do not tell the stories and make sure faith gets passed on to the next generation. But he also says, but, 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 but if you take that baton and you pass it on, what can happen? Check this out. This is huge. Verse 5, 6. 
He decreed statutes for Jacob and established the law in Israel. And this is what it says. I want you to count the generations of impact here. It says, which he commanded our forefathers, okay, that's one generation, to teach their children, that's the second generation, so the next generation would know them, that's the third generation. Even the children yet to be born is the fourth generation, and they in turn would tell their children, that's the fifth generation. Saying when you begin to invest in the coming generations, whatever that looks like, there's an exponential return on that investment. That is huge. That is crucial. You never lose when you invest in the next generation of faith. That's what the Word of God is making clear here. That's why I think it's important. It's so important. Can I say this again? I think it's important that we, if, if your parents here, that you worship with your families. That you sit with them, you teach them so that as they worship God, sitting next to you, they know, okay, mommy just lost her job, yet she's worshiping God, saying, how great is our God. Daddy's just going through the hardest time in life, but he's singing, you are perfect in all of your ways. Right? Kids learn that. Your children, the next generation learns that. Put them next to you. Let them see that. Let them watch you model what it is to have faith in the fire and worship in the wilderness. Teach them. Show them. Lead them. Because they become like the people that they're with. This week I was asked to record a video for a professor at UVA. His name is Professor Ken Elzing, an economics professor. It was his 80th birthday. And so... Um, I was asked, can you record a video uh, wishing him happy birthday and just sharing any memories? Professor Elzinga is an economics professor. He's a Jefferson Distinguished Professor at UVA. Um, list of 100 things you need to do before you leave UVA. One of those things is take Professor Elzinga's antitrust class and microeconomics class. Deeply committed man of faith. He was brought on by Bill Gates when Microsoft was being sued for antitrust in that lawsuit, and he was their chief expert witness but he's also a very devoted Christian. He has an open-door policy, disciple students, whoever would walk in, talk about faith, what does it mean to follow Jesus, an elder in the Presbyterian Church. He was a board member of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. And as I was recording this video, um, I was thinking about um, the impact that he made on my life as I studied in college. I never took his class, um, but I got to know him through the years. When I went to UVA a couple years back, visited him, spent some time, with him and my pastor up there. But I, in that video, and I had 45 seconds to record it, I said to him, Professor Elzinger, um, it's said of some people that the greatest contribution that they make in this world is not something that they do, but it's in the people that they raise up. And I said, thank you for investing into me and believing in me. Um, when I was a college student, when I just finished college and you knew that um, God was doing a work in my heart and that he was calling me to ministry. When I was raising support so I could do campus ministry, um, he wrote me a pretty large check for a large sum of money so I could be on campus and pay my rent and pay my bills and not have to work another job so that I could give myself so that college students could grow as disciples of Jesus Christ. He knew that college represented a massive mission field after which people are going to go. They're going to be the next lawyers, doctors, businessmen, mothers, and fathers. And he said, if we can reach this campus, you can reach the campus, you could reach the world. 
He invested into me. When I was graduating seminary, graduating from seminary, he said, um, he gave me a call one day and he said, I would, I would love for you to come and be a pastor at our church in Charlotte. He was an elder there. It's a huge, just a wonderful church, thriving. Um, some, of the, some of the people who were, who were pastors at the time of that church were uh, some of the movers and shakers of modern-day Christianity. He, he called me. He said, you know, David Larry, I would love for you to come and, and be a pastor at our church. And I didn't, I didn't apply for it. I didn't go for it because I'd already made a decision to stay here. But I said, thank you for believing in me that a young person like me could be able to shepherd uh, someone like you. I thank you for believing in me and just giving life to these dreams within me and encouraging me and helping me to believe in myself through your belief in me. See, he was not just a hero. He was a hero maker, and that's what he was committed to doing. And when we begin to invest in the generations to come, we don't settle for being a hero for people to look at from afar and applaud. We become hero makers that raise up heroes so that they could then become heroes to the generation to come and hero makers for the next generation. This is why Pastor Josiah does what he does, and he gives his life so that the next generation comes see Jesus uh, formed in them. Miss Jeannie labors and loves and gives of her time. Full, uh, she, she went from full-time to part-time at her school, in her school job, while taking seminary classes so she could be full-time here at our church so that she could raise up children who love the Lord and families who are invested into an intergenerational understanding of what it means to pass on faith from one generation to the next. We are depositing into the next generation. And we're here, guys, because generations before us invested into us. We're just withdrawing from that bank right now. And the question is, are we investing into the bank for the coming generations in order that they might receive and they might pull out of that in order that they might find life in Jesus' name. That's the reason why people like Min Sun Kim and Monica Lee for 12 years, for 12 years in the prime times, prime years of their lives, they gave themselves so that young people could know Jesus and could fall in love with him. And, and this year as Min Sun is teaching with uh, Yoon Hyuk Kim, uh, as they teach, I forget what grade they're teaching, but Yoon Hyuk was the first class that she ever taught in Sunday school. She not only raised up a man of faith, was not only a hero to people like him, but she became a hero maker for other people. You never lose. You never lose when you invest your faith into the next generation. You never lose. It's why people like Kenny went out to Portland to spend during a, a really busy part of his life, a busy part of the season for him, leaving his in-law's home to go to Portland to spend time with 30 days sleeping in a sleeping bag in a cabin in the woods because he believed that the faith of the next generation matters. And as he was out there and he was texting me, he said, you know what, I just, I really want them to live not on borrowed faith of their parents, but I want them to have faith of their own. And he gave and he labored and he loved. It, it happens every time, every time we take what we've got and we place it in the hand of somebody else. Because you see, believing in the next generation is not what you say you believe. It's shown in what you're willing to give in order that that next generation could have faith in their hands. How much did God believe in the next generation? It's when all these grown men were unwilling to fight against a giant for the sake of his glory and for the sake of his people. It was a teenage shepherd boy who came out and said, I'll do it, I'll do it. And he used a teenager to save his people from the clutches of a giant. 
when, when that same nation was about to be exterminated because of a bloodthirsty, crazy, psychotic king in Persia. It was a trafficked, exploited young teenage girl named Esther who rose up and said, you know what, for the sake of my people, if I perish, I perish, but so be it with me because this is, this is my destiny. Who knows, but for such a time as this that I've been brought to royal position. It was a 16-year-old king. When kings before him had turned away from God, it was a 16-year-old king named Josiah who rose up and said, God, I will be your man. And he brought revival and reform to the people of God. Just one teenage guy. And when God wanted to enter into the world in order that he could show how much he believed in the next generation, how much did he believe in them? Enough to lay down his life on a cross. When he wanted to enter into this world, and wrap himself in skin and flesh and blood and bones. What did he do? What was his vehicle? What was his channel? It was a teenage unwed girl named Mary through which he would enter into this world. And when other people said, those children, keep them away from Jesus, he was the only one who said, let the little children come unto me. And he loved them, and he loved them, and he loved them, and he died for them, and he rose again so that they would have hope. That's the love of Jesus for the next generation. How does he love them? He loves them through us, generation now. He loves them through us. What we do will either lead to great regret or will lead to great return. But God has squarely placed the baton in our hands. The question is, what are you going to do with it? What are you going to do with it? That we would not have regrets, but that we would see an exponential return because we believe in the work of God in the lives of our younger brothers and sisters, our children, our grandchildren, that we would give and we would labor so that they would know the love of Jesus Christ. This is our inheritance. This is who we are. This is us. Let's jump on board what God is doing. Let's pray together. As we um, enter into um, just the heart and the attitude of prayer, this is what I want to do. If, if your family members are here right now, whether you're, you know, you're a, it's just a brother or sister, maybe it's your children or your parents, I want to ask us to go and to sit with our families right now. So you can, with our eyes closed, if you're walking, keep your eyes open, you don't run into anybody. But with the rest of us, just in, in, a, in a posture of prayer, if you're, you don't have any family here, um, then just remain and just praying, Lord, help me to believe in the next generation. But if you're here and uh, your parents or children are here, uh, let's go to each other right now. We're going to do a couple things. We're going to pray first a time of response. And maybe your response will be, God, I'm sorry for not believing in the next generation. Can I tell you, through our children and through our youth ministry, I mean, God is raising up some world changers. Holy cow. People are going to change the world. Don't give up on them. Man, they're going to run laps around us before we know it. Don't give up on them. God is working in their lives through our youth ministry, through our children's ministry, through our teachers and leaders. Maybe our prayer is, God, I'm sorry. Forgive me outsourcing that to somebody else and not taking ownership over the spiritual nurture of the next generation. Maybe for a parent, Father, forgive me for not taking seriously my call. I need to do that. I need to repent of that for sure. Let's pray that God would help us 
to believe in the next generation, to really be an intergenerational congregation that lives for the glory of God. Maybe for some of you, your response is you just want to pray for someone in the next generation. Let's do that. But can we do that? Can we pray for just a minute like that? And then we're going to sing a song of blessing for the next generation, and we're going to spend some time in praying for them again. So let's just, uh, let's, let's, uh, can we stand? Let's stand together. Let's pray. You know, a lot of times we pray quietly, but I want to invite you. You can pray out loud, especially if you've got someone next to you who can hear your prayers. Yeah. Maybe they need to hear your prayers for them. They need to hear your emotion, your heart, your love for them. Let's pray. For your, if you're a parent, your kids may not be here. Let's pray for your families. Pray for your children. No matter the hurt that they've inflicted upon you or the hurt you've inflicted upon them, let's pray for them. Pray for your parents if you're here and you're not with your family. That's, yeah, pray for them. If you're a teacher, pray for your students as well. But let's pray just with, with just honesty and sincerity for a minute like that. Can we do that? Just pray for a minute. Not a long time, but let's, as our praise team plays music, let's pray yeah. for how we want to respond to this word. And we'll do that, and then um, I'm going to lead us through a time of response. Okay, let's pray together for a moment. We'll go right into the song right after that, but I'll, I'll kind of intro into it. Father, in the name we thank you, Lord. We thank you for sweet daddy, beautiful God. You love us so much. Lord, may you grow in our faith, grow in our knowledge of you. May you see the beauty of the heart that you made. Give us boldness, faith arise within us. Lord, that you would lift her up and you would strengthen her. Father, that you would fill her with your spirit and fill her with your power, fill her with your anointing. Lord, may she know your nearness always, Lord. Thank you, Lord God Almighty. Fill her, Lord God. Touch her. We're going to sing a song. Um, we've never sung it here before, but maybe you've heard it. You, you've seen it on YouTube or something. But we're going to sing a song called The Blessing, and it's just basically it's a prayer, um, the Aaronic benediction from the book of Numbers. Um, comes straight from Scripture. It's a prayer that the priest would pray over uh, the people of God, that the Lord would bless them. And then it's a call that generation after generation, the Lord's blessing would, would come. So let's sing this um, song with faith. Yeah, and, and make this a prayer. If you want to lift your hands as a sign of God's, uh, just I'm receiving your blessing, God. I want to receive from you all that you have. We're going to sing it maybe a, a couple times, and then after that, we're going to um, pray. We're going to move around a little bit and pray uh, for people of the generation to come right, for a few minutes. So um, let's join our praise leaders as they lead us in this song together.